I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, Chris. Um, yes. Dennis is not. Oh, Dennis, you are here today. Okay. Well, I, I guess am, we'll continue. I'm here. I'm <laughs> so here. We're, we're going to continue today on our journey. Uh, and we are talking about, we've crossed that border into the liturgy of the Eucharist. We've talked about the, the first couple of points, 21 and 22, and the general instruction. And, uh, sorry, the Roman Missal. And then we are going to proceed to 23 today. And I don't think we have to be ashamed that... We took 38 minutes to talk about two lines of the Roman Missal. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. This stuff is amazing. <laughs> because this is the depth. We are mining the depths oh, of this man. thing. Okay, now we didn't talk about the offertory chant last time, Chris. Right, right. Now, this okay. is a confusing thing, right? Because it says there's an offertory chant. But then when you go to the Missal, there's a line that's sort of the offertory chant. But then people say it's not supposed to be sung, but it's not really there or it is there and what what's the deal with the offertory wait, 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 back up a little bit you go to the missile and is there a line for offertory th- chant no it's not there is it There's it's nothing. not there yeah. that's the problem right is uh yeah it, it when, when you read in the germ about the offertory chant it kicks you back to number uh uh like number is it 48 something about uh, the entrance chant right and so it says see see manner of singing and uh, norms for entrance chant at number 48 so it doesn't repeat itself so when you go to number 48 it tells you how it can be sung you know by the cantor or by the choir or by the choir and cantor alternating with the people or everybody together and then it so that's the manner but then it talks about where the source of this text okay and so is this apply also to the offertory chant, right? Because when you go to the entrance chant, it says you can sing the antiphon from the Missal or the antiphon from the Graduale Romanum or the antiphon from the Graduale Simplex or the antiphon from another collection or a hymn, okay? But as you pointed out, Dennis, when you open up your Missal, let's say to Easter Sunday or Divine Mercy Sunday or Thursday of the fourth week of Easter, whatever it is, you have an entrance antiphon and you have a communion antiphon, but there's, there is no offertory antiphon. So what are you supposed to do? Darn good question. Pick a song you like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, why is there no offertory antiphon? You know, I'm not sure I know. Uh, I've heard people kind of lament about this, that it, it was only meant to be sung and not spoken, and so they didn't put it in to the missal because they would have thought that it would have been a spoken mass. But I don't know if that's true. Oh, I've heard that same thing. Um, yeah, I don't. Well, yes. Well, we should back up in a little bit and say there is such a thing as an offertory chant that exists in these other sources in the Graduale Romanum and the Graduale Simplex and some other collections. It's just not in the missal. So yeah, so that's the question. Why did it not find its way in the missal? And and I yeah, similar to that, Dennis. I think what I've heard is you know the the priest is capable of saying the offertory, excuse me, the entrance in the in the communion chant because he's not doing other things. But at this moment, he is doing other things. He's receiving the gifts. He's preparing the bread and wine, and so he's praying other prayers. And so he's not going to be 
reciting the Avatar chants because he's got other stuff to say. So that's this is all speculation, but so it's, it's just from the perspective of the priest. Well, that that's one of the uh, one of the I don't know suggested reasons why there isn't one in the missile. Well, Bunini, you know, he wrote his autobiography. Annabelle Bunini, you know, the great architect of the reformed rites, said in his uh, kind of autobiographical book that um, if there's no offertory procession, then um, it would. What did he say? It's a textual overload. So the entrance and communion and of funds are sung or read for their value in showing the meaning of the celebration. The offertory may may be omitted if it is not sung because it loses its value as an accompaniment to a procession. It could, if it were simply read, it would create textual overload in this part of the celebration. So as you're saying, Chris, there's, he's saying other things, doing other things, and then to add this other thing would be a little funny. It's like, like the Alleluia, right? That doesn't have to be said if it's not sung, right? Right, and right. It, so he's presenting it as the same reason, but the the uh, general instruction, or at least the rubbish for the missile, don't uh, don't clarify that. So, yeah. Well, and you'd think too, if if what the liturgical, on the other hand, what the if the what the liturgical movement wanted was this restored procession with the gifts, then it would make sense though that it needs to exist somewhere because a procession, like at the entrance, or like it like at Palm Sunday, like at the Easter Vigil, like at Communion, these processions are always accompanied by the singing of psalmody. So if they wanted the people to be coming forward with the gifts, then I don't know, I would think, I would think by that logic, Bunini uh, et al. would uh, want to have that. Uh, yeah, it should say, in, if there is a procession, the following chant is sung, right? If not, it may be omitted, right? But for some reason, that's not. Well, you know, didn't they do all this on the back of a napkins and cafe and <laughs> maybe it's just one of those things they didn't get through on the back of a corporal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, but l- let's, so let's say though, see, we, we, we don't want people to think, well, there's no antiphon. So we'll just pick a hymn because there are in the tradition, there's antiphons and Psalms that can be sung. So what let's, let's go to, we've talked about Adam Bartlett's uh, settings before. Where does he get his, Offertory antiphons and psalms. I think he said he got them from the Gradualia Romanum or one of the other permitted exactly. uh, options. So it's not in the yeah. missal, but uh, there is a, a treasury to draw from nonetheless. Exactly. And so, and then his uh, his translations, though. I mean, everything in the missal is duly approved as a translation by the bishops' conferences in the Holy See. What about uh, these? Well, if I don't want to put words in his mouth. If he were here, I'd ask him to clarify. But I think I remember he told me that even though they're graduale, he's treating them as some other song. <laughs> because that happens to be a lot like the graduale. And then yeah. it doesn't have to be officially approved by ISIL. Oh, using the using that logic. Wow, that's interesting. Maybe he maybe he can correct me, but Yeah, no, I think I mean it would suffice on uh on that uh, criteria too. But no, I think the the things he's used have been approved have by they? Okay. Yeah, by his bishop, who uh, apparently has that. Yeah, so they uh, they had been uh, duly approved. Anyway, yeah, so uh, offertory uh, is sung at this point to accompany the coming forward of hearts, minds, and souls, prayers, works, joys, and sufferings. Right. So it's a proper text. Let's, we didn't say that, yeah. but we talk about yeah. propers all the time for the entrance into fun, communion into fun. Proper text belongs to the day, belongs to the feast, related to the saint, whatever it is. So it increases mm-hmm. the revelation of what's happening that day, and yeah. that's always, uh, always preferred. To something that does less. All right. Now, at the risk of going too fast here, why don't we go to number 23? <laughs> you mean like okay. to the next sentence? Yeah. You mean yeah. let's, let's start yeah. the podcast? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. I'm going to 
going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what. Let's go to, let's go to order mass number 23. All right. Says the priest standing at the altar takes the patent with the bread and holds it slightly raised above the altar with both hands, saying in a low voice, <coughs> Sorry. That's not what he says. <laughs> Sorry. What's he say? Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you for the wor- earth and work of human hands will become for us the bread of life. And the people may, uh, if it says uh, then below, if the Aftura chant is not being sung at this time, um, and the priest says those aloud, the people can respond, blessed be God. Oh, so that's why you guys wanted to talk about the Aftura chant, because then it affects this, right? Well, that's not exactly why, but yes, it does. I don't know. Since I'm uh, finishing up a uh, class for you, Jesse, on blessings. I mean, notice this, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. And then at the end, blessed be God forever. Right? The, the, the first direction of all blessings is to, is to God. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, but these are called, uh, I remember these being called uh, Barakah prayers. Yes. Have you heard that? I have. So what's, uh, do you remember what it means? I don't. Oh, please tell okay. me. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for blessing. So, uh, BRK or uh, uh, Barak uh, means, uh, I think that actually means knee, to bend the knee, but it's the it's the Hebrew word for a blessing. And so there was a number of uh, uh, blessings that occurred in uh, among the chosen people. And uh, these, um, I believe, were adapted in some way from that. So this, it, but this is the, the the challenge: is to find out are they true adaptations, or were these Jewish Baraka prayers were they in turn somehow influenced by early Christian prayers in the early centuries? Uh, and this is a, an historian's uh, task, so it's a little unclear about the relationship between these early prayers um, and uh, uh, the, these prayers of the chosen people and the early Christian prayers. But there's this line from the Catechism. This is a 1096 says the Eucharistic prayers also draw their inspiration from Jewish tradition. And so in a lot of these, uh, it seems like a paradigm of some of these uh, Jewish prayers is that God was first blessed for creation. He was later thanked for some saving event in salvation history. And then he was petitioned for like a, a fuller fulfillment of his promises in the future. God blessed for creation, thanked for salvation history, petitioned for future fulfillment. And it seems that you you kind of have uh, vestiges of this in, I mean, however closely or remotely, in the Eucharistic prayer. So right here in these Barakah prayers, what is God being blessed for? For providing this food. Right. And then later, when we get to the end of the preface dialogue, let us give Thanks to the Lord our God, it is truly right and it is right and just. It is truly right and just, always and everywhere, to give you thanks, O Holy Father, Mighty God, Eternal. And then, what's the contents of the uh, the preface? But the Church remembers or recounts some divine intervention in uh, in saving her. Right. So God's thanked then for this, and then a little bit later in the Eucharistic prayer, God is petitioned for that those who receive this sacrament may come to the fullness of uh, of, a, of a single church, you know, in heaven and on earth and things now, like if that. If I remember so, right, these were added to the Revised Missal, right? These were not present before. That's the correct. Council. So you, that's I correct. know that there are people who get prickly about 
this as something that's different from the Trentine Missile and not uh, organic development, but rather a kind of insertion or imposition. I don't know. Do you have a you have an opinion on that, Chris? No. If I knew more about uh, the stated question, I probably would, but I don't. I don't. But I, like you, Dennis, I know that it's a debatable point uh, by some, but I don't know enough about the, uh, I don't know, the arguments on, on both sides to even have an opinion about it. Do you know any more? I don't know. That's why I asked no. you. You're, you know everything, Chris. Yeah. You're my answer. Okay. Man. So that's the uh, that's the uh, uh, the prayer over the bread. Let's go to twenty four. Okay, so at twenty four, says the deacon or the priest pours wine and a little water into the chalice, saying, "Deacon Jesse, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbles, who humbled himself to share in our humanity." Okay, so what is this all about? Well, people talk about joining your humanity to Christ's divinity, and that the classic thing about adding humanity to divinity with water into wine. Yeah, I think there's a number of interpretations and I suppose they all bring with them, you know, a degree of, uh, of, uh, of truth to them. But yeah, that's the one is that when the deacon uh, or the priest pours in that water, this is a representation of uh, humanity and the wine, a representation of Christ's uh, divinity and that they, they come together. And I think this is adapted, if I remember rightly, you get a, you hear about this, what's called the uh, divine exchange or commercium uh, is a line, I think, especially out of St. Augustine that appears often in uh, the Advent and Christmas uh, prayers. But here it is too. There's this, uh, this, this, this exchange. So God gives us uh, divinity in exchange for us giving him our humanity. But yeah, that's that I think is the most profound one, is this coming together of our humanity and his divinity, he becoming humanized in a certain sense, we becoming divinized. Uh, Does that as go well. back to the uh, wedding feast at Cana, turning water into wine? That's that same kind of notion of something earthly and ordinary becomes extraordinary in the finest one. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, honestly, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I, I've almost taken back to the baptism of Christ in the Jordan, where he takes our humanity and uh, drowns it, kills it, and then resurrects it with his divinity, uh, this kind of water uh, theme. But yeah, I suppose all of these water and wine uh, uh, stories from, from the scriptures uh, somehow find their way in here. I mean, take, another... To take your point further, Chris, I've, I've heard people say that water itself was divinized at that very moment mm, mm -hmm. and then able to to use to be baptized because Christ was in water water itself was divinized yeah so that every other time a human person goes into the baptismal font it's it's almost that same water that uh, that he's being uh, drowned and come back to life in i've also heard it say that once you pour water into wine you can't get it out again <laughs> so you can't get it out once yeah, you join right. your humanity to divinity it's not going to get undone right so it's yeah. a kind of a symbol of permanence or being incorporated into this larger better thing well you know it's it's related to what we were talking about before about getting uh from your place in the pew kind of via the the altar bread onto the onto the patent this too i mean uh, just think of that deacon pouring you into the chalice in a way not to be divided from Jesus ever again. But again, the, the challenge is kind of getting into that cruet because I always want to keep something back for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, don't want to give it all over. I'll give some of it, 
But I want to keep a lot to myself. Well, the more we can get into the crew, the more we can be uh, united to Christ, the more we can be uh, transubstantiated in a certain sense, transfigured and divinized, uh, along with Christ, along with the elements when they go to uh, to God the Father. Um, All right. Like it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and th- there's, there's, there's a lot that could be said about this, but do you know... Um, how much water do you put in? Usually it's like one little drop, right? In a yeah, a drop, a little bit. Yeah. What if you uh, uh, What if you get careless and you put in more than a little drop? It has to be more than 50% wine. Yeah, as long as it's mostly <laughs> wine, you, you can still you can put a lot in. I don't know. What do you think? What if it's it's actually white wine and you're actually pouring <laughs> wine into water? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another set of problems too. Right, but in the end, what has to end up in that chalice is what by the common estimation would be considered wine. And if you water down the wine too much, then it's... Uh, and that was one of the interpretations, too, that wine was very thick, and so you had to add water to it to make it drinkable or so that you wouldn't get drunk, things like that. But if you add too much, then it becomes invalid matter because it ceases to be wine, Seems starts to become some other third type of thing that's not really water, it's not really wine. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know one so, of my customs, but I think Jesse knows this, because of my super tasterness, I, like sodas are too sweet for me and water is too boring for me, so I'll put a splash of Coke in a glass of water and pe- and it just tastes like slightly sweet, sweet water, but it's neither Coke nor is it water. And most people think it's disgusting, huh. <laughs> but, I, but it is, it is fully gross. Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's not water because it's got Coke in it and it's definitely not Coke because it's flat and, uh, doesn't taste much like Coke. So I can see this exact same I feel problem. like you are like the perfect candidate for seltzer water. Do you not drink seltzer water? Yeah. Like the flavored waters. Those are good. Yep. Yeah. But they don't taste like Coke. They don't have Coke flavored seltzer or do they? Dennis, do you when you do that? Do you use a, a scruple spoon? Um, yes, every time. What? <laughs> you, What's a scruple do spoon? Know, do you know what a scruple spoon no. is, Jesse? Okay, it's like a little. I mean, what I'm thinking in my head is not what you're going to say. So I will, like, I'll just close my mouth. It's like a little tiny spoon, or like a ladle, almost. I don't know, three, four inches long in the handle, and it's got a little tiny, uh, like ladle at the end, and so so that you wouldn't. Um, inadvertently put in too much water into the wine. If you use this little uh, instrument, you could scoop oh, out just the yeah. right amount and put it into your chalice. And you right. wouldn't have to worry you about- You see those in, um, in a set with old yeah. chalices. There's a little spoon. Yeah. I always thought that was in case they did uh, giving the Blessed Sacrament, you know, precious blood by spoon or something like the Easterns do, but it's not it's for the water. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So I've seen that for, from time to time, but uh, anyway- all right, and I, I'm oh. sure that's not its official uh, term. Scruple uh, spoon, but so yeah. See if you can find it's like anything. Dumbledore, about that, so. you know, isn't was he the head of one of the schools in Hogwarts? Or something? <laughs> spoon. All right, so so after the I chal- think he was in Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Uh, after the chalice is prepared, then the priest says this other thing: "Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands it will become our spiritual drink. Blessed be God forever." Okay. Uh, what happens uh, next? Do you guys see it there at number 26? 
The priest bows and does like a little quiet prayer, humble and spirit yeah. and contrite heart. Maybe yeah, since it's quiet, and so since people don't know it, I'm sorry, I should just let you go. No, Unless right. you're the server, uh, you maybe you've not heard this. What is the prayer that the priest says? With humble spirit and contrite heart, may we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you, Lord God. All right. Do you remember, uh, Dennis, from uh, old mystical body, mystical voice days? Uh, this uh, Father Martis would explain this uh, uh, quite beautifully. No, I always tuned you guys out whenever I was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, does, does the line sound familiar to you? It's scripturally uh, um, uh, inspired and almost uh, actually oh, scripturally this, uh, uh, lifted. The three guys in the fire? No. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. exactly. What are they? So, they have those great names. What are? They, what's the first one? Meshach, yeah. and Abednego, and uh, Shem, Shem, and Eric, Sh- <laughs> <laughs> and Shadrach, and Chandler. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, so the story right is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tick off King Nebuchadnezzar, and he throws them into the fiery furnace because they won't worship uh, this idol that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, erected uh, from himself. And so uh, it's called the Prayer of Azariah, who, I, I don't know, I think Azariah is uh, Meshach. I can't remember which one. So there's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, uh, I think it's their, their Hebrew names. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their, I don't know, maybe Babylonian names. I'm not sure, quite sure about that. But they get in the fiery furnace, and uh, this is the prayer. And you'll recognize this because it's prayed at uh, morning prayer. I don't remember which day of the week. Sometime during, um, well, think of a Sunday morning week one, right? There's that that prayer of sun and moon bless the lord stars of heaven bless the lord dew yeah. and rain bless the lord okay so that's on the uh this is after god has answered the prayer so in the in the office uh there's the prayer of azariah which i'm going to read for, which is the genesis of this prayer here and then after they get out um he goes on to bless god and then the third part of this is um, sun and moon bless the Lord, stars of heaven bless the Lord, and things like that. Okay, so they're all part of that uh, book of Daniel chapter 3 when they're in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, but this is the prayer of Azariah in the fiery furnace. He says, We are reduced, O Lord, beyond any other nation, brought low everywhere in the world this day because of our sins. We have in our day no prince, prophet, or leader, no burnt offering, sacrifice, oblation, or incense, no place to offer first fruits to find favor with you, right? Because they're, the chosen people have been taken into this Babylonian captivity and the temple in the city have all been destroyed. So they don't have an altar. They don't have a priesthood. They don't have oblations. And they certainly don't have anything in the midst of this fiery furnace. So then uh, Azariah goes on, but with contrite heart and humble spirit, let us be received as though it were burnt offerings of rams and bulls or tens of thousands of fat lambs. So let our sacrifice be in your presence today and find favor before you. In other words, what he's saying is, is uh, we don't have anything to give you except humble spirits and contrite hearts, which in the end is the only thing God wanted in the first place. Keep your bulls and your things like that. Um, And so God answers their prayer. And so this is what then the priest says at the same point, because kind of the nave is this kind of fiery furnace and everybody's bringing forward humble spirits and contrite hearts, not just $5 bills, $20 bills, things like that. Uh, and $2 then, bills, this, Bitcoin. This is what Bitcoin. <laughs> Dodgecoin. Uh, it's Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is it really? Oh, I love that. I have no I idea what it is. So much. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you kids are gonna have to explain that to me someday. Uh, all right. So the priest all right, then. All right, like, Grandpa. <laughs> has brought, has received humble spirits and contrite hearts in the bread and wine and whatnot, and he's preparing them. And he says this prayer of Azariah with humble spirit and contrite heart: May we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you. Lord God. There's a lot of Bible in this mass of ours, isn't there? Everywhere. Everywhere. Bible, Bible, Bible. Yeah, the church prays Bible. Okay. All right. So uh, after that, uh, let's see. He starts incensing if there's incense. Yeah, 27. Yep. Can possibly incense and uh, remind us what incense means. Well, it's the prayers, the people rising up. Burnt offerings rising up in prayer to our Lord. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And... We don't need to get into this, but we recently did talk about how to incense and how many swings and all of that oh, in a yeah. recent podcast. So, yeah. so we don't need to go into that now. Yeah. But. Thank goodness. But you know that there's that part where the, the priest incenses the offerings, but then the deacon or the server comes out with the oh, censer to the people, point. right? So it's not just, hey, this bread and wine is being offered. It's, hey, you too, get up and let us offer you on this altar. So the moment yeah. there isn't just get up and bow and... You know, that's it. It's like, okay, have that intention. Going all uh, John Honey right there, uh, Dennis. Yes. Good old John yeah, it's, Hon- it's Honey. The, it's the people who are the true offerings. I mean, God, right? You know, God can take all the bread in the world, but he can't take your spirit and your will and your love. And so that's really the object of the oblation is you being somehow, I don't know, uh, represented, expressed, signified, truly by the bread and wine. That's the stuff that God that God wants. Okay. All right. Twenty eight says the priest then um, washes his hands. Lavabo me, mm-hmm. wash me, O Lord, for my iniquity. And that started in COVID time, so glad yeah. we added that. Yeah. yeah. That's Psalm fifty one, Chris. I mean, Psalm yeah, Psalm fifty one. Is it? Number two. More Bible going on. Yeah. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So this is Psalm asking, I've done all this evil, but Lord, if you clean me, then I'll be restored to gladness. So same idea. Well, and again, even, so Psalm 51 is prayed every Friday morning prayer, right? And isn't it, there's that line in that song about with a humble spirit and contrite heart, Mm -hmm. you know, then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, Holocaust offered on your altar, but not until... You know, I'm purified of my iniquity and, and can offer a clean spirit. Yeah, the, I have a slightly different, it's the King James translation, but it's the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Mm, that's it. So that's the real sacrifices I give this to you, even though you might think dollar bills are part of it. Uh, I've never made that connection before, Dennis, between that that prayer text, wash me, O Lord, for my iniquity, and Psalm 51, and this whole notion of pure ablation and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to be cleansed and give that heart, you know, God God not only takes the heart, but he cleanses it for you first, and then you get to give it to him. So he does it all. Yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, 29, we're wrapping this up then, uh, the preparation of the altar. So then there's this orate uh, fratres. Yes. Uh, pray, brethren. And um, remember this from the translation days, orate, what's orate mean? Pray. The imperative to pray. Yeah, versus Oremus. We pray. Let us pray. Yeah, let us. I invite you to come along and pray with me. Uh, why <laughs> do we pray? Okay, but yeah, the orate is not some invitation to pray. It's a command. Pray. This is, we're really getting to, to the heart of the matter here. Pray. 
uh, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours, which is the whole gist of the offertory, the offertory chant, the whole meaning of the bread and wine, may be acceptable to the Almighty Father. And then the people will say, may the Lord accept, right? To that point before uh, Jesse, right? God will accept you, but he won't take you. And right. the people, and say, it's a humble way to ask too. Like, may you accept this? Because mm. we can, n- neither can we, God, take our offering without us offering it, nor can we command Him to, <laughs> you know, accept yeah. our offering. So there's this humility in that exchange, I think, which mm. is really beautiful. What's that song? I don't remember who it's by. I've heard it in a long time. Take Mambo Lord, number five. No, no, I've heard that <laughs> over the weekend. Baby Shark. Take Lord, receive. Da, 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 da. Do you know that one? I do not. I don't either. Yeah. All right, let's keep going along. Though, but it's it's <laughs> but this, that, it's this, this. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say this is a this is the core of the the mass and the message right here. And I I talk to people about this all the time. You know, we we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast the the two core components of the of the mass: uh, glorification to God and sanctification of, of mankind. That's this is it right here, right here. You know, that's all laid out. You know, and you see it in the language right here. You know, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and the glory of his name. So we praise and glorify him. And then we say for our good and for the good of all his holy church. So what I really love about this uh, is that it's not just solely for our good. That would be enough. That would. That would be enough that we would go to mass and then it was good for us. But what's really great about this, it's not just for our good, but it's for our good and the good of all mankind, basically. And that's the transitive properties of grace through us where we can Christify mankind. And so that's why this, like, this language here is so beautiful to me. There really is so much here. I mean, you think it, it's tempting just to think of this as a kind of halftime of the mass and sit down, sing a pretty song. <laughs> but there's so much going on in these words, in these rites, in these processions, in the bows, in the, in the, in the scriptural um genesis of these prayers that uh yeah to to miss all that is really to miss a great deal but and to, that phrase did, was used at the heart of the matter for liturgical reform in the 20th century mm-hmm. when people would say well people the priest is ordained and we're not we don't get to do anything they would always turn this prayer and say but it's right there in the missal from the early days of the church pray brethren yes you have something to pray uh, uh, that my sacrifice priest jobs is supporting the priest is a funny thing you think well they're ordained i'm not but pray that this sacrifice will be uh, acceptable. Do you remember when that was translated, my sacrifice and yours, and some people were getting irritated because people were getting irritated about every change, and they're like, it should be our <laughs> yeah. sacrifice because the old missal translation said, pray that our sacrifice may be acceptable. And then separating out my sacrifice and yours, people were complaining, oh, it's two sacrifices. It's like, nope. <laughs> and they were saying it's anti-Vatican II to say it's like, no, it's the exact opposite of that, right? <laughs> that the people are being reminded and asked to support the priest as in, in his headship of the mystical body's prayer. And I'd, I would be remiss, Chris, if we didn't talk about, you, you had even talked about postures and gestures just now. So in here, it, it talks about the posture, uh, the people rise and reply. And this is something that People talk about so a lot. Another like, thing that's uh, that's overlooked a lot. Yeah. yeah, there's that there's that line. There's a couple lines. Go Old Testament again. It's in one of the Psalms about uh, God the Father would have destroyed them in His anger had not Moses withstood Him in the breach, in the breach and turned back His wrath. So it's almost like you know you've got angry God on one hand, you've got uh, 
you know, stick, stiff-necked uh, humanity on the other hand, and God is about to destroy them. And what's Moses do? But he kind of steps right into the middle, says, no, 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 no. We, we, we can affect some sort of reconciliation. And so that that rubric, Dennis, that we follow at the LI, and that I don't, I don't know, we're, we're, it's starting to creep in, at least at St. Philip's here, where it says, after the priest says, uh, maybe acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, the rubric is actually there. And it says, the people rise and reply, like Moses. Mm-hmm. They're going to step into the breach, you know, exercise their baptismal priesthood, which is very Vatican II and pre-Vatican II, very ecclesial. And they're going to say, no, 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 come on. I'm gonna, we're going to affect a reconciliation through this gift that is about to be uh, offered. We, and you, we did a whole podcast just on postures, and we talked about this in depth. So I forget the name of it, but you can go back and listen to it. But it's one thing to be standing already and declare something, right? It's another thing to be sitting down already and saying something. It's a it's an entirely third different thing to your po- your posture goes from standing, then you sit because that implies you're going to prepare yourself to be listening. But to be sitting, then to rise, and then to proclaim something is that that it, it's a very specific meaning, and I th- I think that's really important, especially given the context of what we're talking about with the the figures of liturgical movement and what we're proclaiming, and and that emphasizes. The fact that we stand to say something, which is isn't really done many other places in the mass. I can't think yeah. of one actually. Yeah. You know, remind me of when you were talking, Jesse. Think about the the ordination to the priesthood or the diaconate or something like that. You know, uh, Dennis McNamara. He stands. He steps into the center aisle and he says, "Present. I'm here." Yeah. So the same sort of thing. Stand up, ready for action. Reply and move. And that's kind of the same thing going on here. So. Right. And, and when you go to the average parish, it's stand and mumble at the same time. It's, it's mumble, then stand. And like everybody does it slightly differently. And it's a little hard to get that get that arranged uh, properly. But uh, and we actually have the priest here at the Abbey. He always directs with his hands, stand, and then speak, which is – it's hard to tell. I asked a scholar, a Latin scholar, and just looking at the Latin – it doesn't say stand and then reply. It says stand and reply, right? So you, it could be consecutive. It could be at the same time. The, the directions aren't clear, although we've been kind of uh, following the law that you stand and then reply. But the, technically, the Latin doesn't have a sequential character to the to the words there. Do you do that at Benedictine, Dennis? I do. But I always stand up a little later than everybody else. Everybody else stands up and oh, says yeah, before it. Before the well, So you don't believe in unity and worship. Great. Well, you know. <laughs> I've been formed by Chris. Orthodox and Father Martis. I do what they do. <laughs> oh, God, you poor guy. <laughs> All right. Number 30, then. Uh, the priest with hands extended says the prayer over the offerings, uh, at the end of which everybody uh, says amen. So there's generally three uh, presidential prayers for Mass. There's the opening prayer, there's the prayer over the offering, offerings, and the prayer after communion. So this is the middle one. Uh, it has a short conclusion through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then and the after that, the prayer starts. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Altars prepared. Hearts are prepared. Minds are prepared. Humbled spirits are prepared. And we're ready to go beyond the veil. And uh, You know what I love about all of this, Chris, is that um, the way the liturgy is written, so to speak, or designed, uh, I know that's not the best way to describe it. but On napkins? Yeah, napkins. But we are given so many opportunities throughout the Mass to enjoin ourselves on this offering. You know, it it could be 
the mind of the church. We're like, this is the only place where we do that. But we can do that throughout the liturgy of the word. Like, there's just so many opportunities for us to like get into that mode and to offer something. It's not just, oh, hold on, you gotta pay attention right now to do this. It's the whole thing. And I, you know, it's kind of hitting me as we're going through this how many opportunities and how much the language in the mind of the church is mm-hmm. pushing us in that direction and how little I thought of that, you know, before, you know, my time yeah. at the LI. Because the heart of the matter is what? Christ has the capacity to offer us to the Father. He's made that his gift. Humanity and divinity are not separated but joined. And because, as you said, Chris, is not forced on us, we have to offer and so it's offer this, offer that, remember this, pray this, offer yourself, pray for this person, pray for that person, my sacrifice and yours. And it's amazing. Oh, so many of us, and I'm, I'll accuse myself of it too, just sort of, well, I'll wait around until Eucharist is confected and then I get my spiritual vitamin pill, as I like to say. But it's like, no, this is all part of a much larger process of participating in an action. Christ offering us to the Father, I offer myself to the Father through Christ. Bam. Bam. All right. That's it. Liturgy question? Let's do it. I'll consider it. We we like quadrupled our efficiency in this podcast, just so everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't get used to it. <laughs> Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Okay, this week we have a question from Sam. Sam says, hello, liturgy guys. Hey, Sam. Hello, Sam. Sammy boy. Could be a girl. (laughs) Sammy girl. Well, that's actually very true. Whatever you feel Uh, like, Sam, it's up to you. (laughs) Just kidding. Sam says, I really enjoyed your recent podcast going through the Roman Missal and I have a question about the corporal that you talked about. I have heard some priests talk about the fact that nothing should go on the corporal at all, and yet I have seen some priests place the Roman Missal stand on the corporal or other objects on the corporal during Mass. Can you parse this out for me? Yeah, I've never seen anything uh, about do not place X, Y, or Z on the corporal. Uh, I I know too. Sometimes the missile stand, maybe the corner of it, ends up on part of the corporal. I don't think that's out of keeping with the legislation. I mean, the corporal is meant to be a practical, yet not simply practical. It's it's symbolic of our love and care and devotion for the Blessed Sacrament, but it's meant to collect particles. That's its main job. And I don't think that having the corner of the missile stand or something like that would uh, would get in the way of that. Trying to think of other things, you know. I sometimes I see priests they'll take their watch off or something like that when they enter into the liturgy of the Eucharist. I I don't know. I wouldn't put the watch on the corporal or anything. Anything that's not. I mean, there shouldn't be anything on the altar that's not necessary for the celebration of uh, uh, of the Eucharist, but certainly not on the corporal. I know that uh, in my own diocese, uh, Bishop uh, uh, Callahan has uh, kind of a rule of thumb is we talk about how the corporal has is basically these nine squares, you know, and he says, uh, I think that's what he says, the bottom six squares are for me. Deacons don't put anything on that. That's that's the area that I need when I celebrate uh, 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 the mass, but kind of a personal preference. I think too that- uh, I, today, yeah. to These days though, uh, Chris, you were talking about what else would go there. 
we, since we kind of removed the offertory and the, and it's coming back now, but a lot of times the altar would be preset with the gifts. And so you'd have the cruets on there and, and everything there because of COVID. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. You know, well, even COVID or not, I think of daily masses where maybe the priest doesn't have a server or something like that. He might have the cruets or other things over at the edge of the altar, or he's taken off the altar veil and the bursts. But ideally, none of that is on on top of Jesus at this point. This is moved back to the to the credence uh, table. Yeah, uh, bulletins, missalettes, you know, other things like that shouldn't be there. Um, I was thinking, uh, you know, imagine post-COVID when you, when you do have, you know, a dozen chalices that you need to have filled for the distribution of uh, communion under the under the form of the precious blood. We're not there in lacrosse yet, but I know we'll, we'll inf- unfold a second corporal and just have the two of them right next to each other. So all of the uh, ancillary chalices or other uh, ciboria can be placed uh, on those. But again, that's what it's for is to be... Uh, uh, to be beneath the body and blood uh, of Christ on the altar. So I, I've been to a, a papal mass. I went to the canonization of John Paul II and John the Twenty Third, and they had probably two eight foot tables, you know, set up with, you know, maybe fifty to sixty uh, ciborium. You know, did that was that a corporal that was underneath all of those supposedly? I'll bet there would be something functioning as a corporal, whether they had kind of the standard 18 inches by 18 inches corporals, you know, a bunch of those laid out. I don't know, but they, uh, my uh, guess is that they had something to function as a corporal beneath those. So Dennis, you were mentioning, uh, I mean, the, you, it, back at, uh, in our days at uh, Mundelein, they had this uh, very large type of corporal that yeah, was- It was the size important. of almost the entire top of the altar. It looked like an altar cloth, except it didn't hang down on the edges. Because they'd bring five, six chalices over for big masses with lots of people, and you couldn't fit them on one corporal. And um, I think that was Father Martis's, uh suggestion is just to have a big corporal. I mean, it's not prescribed mm-hmm. how big it should be. I suppose its yeah. its intention was normally when there was only one chalice and one patent, they didn't have, you know, concelebration, or they didn't um, consecrate all the hosts at one mass. You know, they'd take from the tabernacle, but... I don't know. What do you think? Is an altar-sized corporal kind of just now a big altar cloth? <laughs> or is it, yeah. They didn't pick it up every mass either. I think they would leave it there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's supposed to be refolded and whatnot. Yeah. You know, we've come across this so many times. You know, you're trying to trying to find a solution that isn't an obvious one. You these trying to do two or three good things at the same time. And sometimes you come up with a strange solution. And I'm not saying this one is strange, but it just seems not quite you know, a, a, a corporal, the size of the entire altar cloth doesn't quite seem to be what it's for, but yeah, I could imagine a larger size corporal. And you can see the problem if it doesn't look like a corporal, someone might think it's an altar cloth and just sort of pick it up and shake it off. Right. And not realize there might be particles of the host there. So Small enough to be recognizable as a corporal, but big enough to do what you want, right? That's it's claritas, the, the mean between extremes of excess and deficiency, right? And claritas, you got it, Chris. And claritas, yes. All right. Well, uh, Sam, I hope that answers your question. It certainly answers a question I didn't know that I had. And if you have a question for <laughs> us, you can email us. What? That's fun. That's true. It's <laughs> very true. Yeah. I love these questions because they're like, oh. I did, I did want to know that. Yeah. All right. If you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you. And, and God, God bless. bless us each and every one.
Thanks, Tiny Tim. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pippin. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.